0: I invite you to open God's word with me this morning as we approach this table to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to share with you these words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a very dysfunctional church. He's writing to them about what the Lord's Supper means. And he's writing to them uh, in part because he's responding to some, well, to some pretty bad behavior. It seems when they gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, they actually had a full meal, kind of a fellowship, obviously proving that these people were Baptists. They had their potlucks, you know, everybody bring your stuff. But what was happening there is that the people who were wealthy, the people who were prestigious were moving themselves to the very front of the line. And so by the time the poor people got off work and got there, there was nothing left to eat. They gorged themselves. They they considered it a huge party, so that they stuffed themselves and, and, and drank so much that they became drunk. And this in a festival to celebrate the love of God. And so the Apostle Paul straightens them out. And he tells them, This is what it's about. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open. It's first Corinthians eleven, beginning with verse twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, help me to communicate effectively this morning so that your word and your will may be proclaimed. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you have gathered in a service like this, some of you for hundreds of times. You've taken the bread, uh, you've taken the cup, and it may have been in, in different circumstances. I know that uh, having celebrated communion at youth camps and things like that, we didn't always have the unleavened bread and the grape juice. I remember we've used grape knee-high before, which gives you get a little bit of a fizzy effect. Um, we've used I, We used moon pie one time. We just didn't have any bread, and so we just kind of sliced up moon pie and used that. Now, it, I'm not trying to be irreverent here. Because the point is not, where did you get the food? The point is what it means. And whether you've celebrated the Lord's Supper a hundred times or not, whether this is the first time you've ever gathered around this table as a believer to share in this meal, the elements mean the same thing. When we come to this table, we recognize the body of Jesus and the bread The bread that Jesus broke and gave to his disciples. And this is significant because we have a Savior who came to earth as a human being. That's what we celebrate on Christmas if you haven't put the two together. We celebrate Jesus coming to us in a body, coming to us as a baby, fully God and yet fully human. He lived and walked among us and we don't often think about this but you know he had to deal with the same kinds of things that we did. His feet got dirty. His legs got tired. The smells that turn our stomach turned his too. He was human in every way that we are human, and yet he was God. And he came and he not only did miracles and not only taught, that was not his primary purpose in coming. His primary purpose in coming was the cross and the resurrection. And when Jesus hung on the cross, this was not some spiritual apparition. This was not some uh, sleight of hand. He hung on the cross bodily. The pain was real. The wounds were real and the death was real. And when we gather around this table and we take the bread in our hands and we feel it and we taste it, it is a reminder that Jesus came. Physically to us to give up his life on the cross for us. This is my body given for you. And then when we come and we take the cup and we look at the redness of the liquid that is inside, it is a reminder to us of the blood of Jesus Christ Now, blood was very important to the Jews. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Jesus' time, if you'd gone to the temple, you would expect to see something bright and glorious and gleaming. What you would find is death. What you'd find is blood flowing through troughs cut in the stone. Why so much death? Because there was so much sin. You see, animals were brought day and night to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And there was a special day called the Day of Atonement where the high priest and the high priest alone would sacrifice a lamb without spot, without blemish. A perfect lamb would sacrifice that lamb and would take the blood into the holy of holies. And he did it for the remission, for the atonement of the sins of the people. He was there representing the people and bringing the the blood of the spotless lamb into the Holy of Holies, seeking God's forgiveness for the people. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. His blood covering our sin. His blood washing us clean, making us pure. His blood, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant. A new covenant in grace poured out for the forgiveness of, of your sins. Now usually when we come to this table we focus on the word remember. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this bread in remembrance of me. Take this cup in remembrance of me and that's that's appropriate. We need to remember. That's one of the reasons that God gave this to us is so that we could remember. We dare not forget this. The great sacrifice, the price paid for us, the great love of God, the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the great blessing of being included in him. But today, I'd like us to focus on verse 26. Verse 26, which says this, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sometime back, there was an article in the Charlotte Observer about a church, and that church was called Ball City Baptist Church, and it was located in Luck, North Carolina. Now, if you don't know where Luck, North Carolina is, you're probably in the majority. Luck, North Carolina is an unincorporated township just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And so, Ball City Baptist Church, well, you you and I wouldn't consider it much of a church. Why? Why? Well, because they have no pastor, and they hold no services. All the members have either died or moved away, all save one, 74-year-old Florence Hayes. This one lady arranges to have the lawn cut, to have the building taken care of, And every Sunday morning, without fail, Florence Hayes gets up. She unlocks the doors of Ball City Baptist Church. She turns on the lights, the heat or the air as needed. She arranges the flowers on the pulpit. She sits and she waits. When asked why, she said, I do all this In case someone comes... She wasn't doing it because this is tradition. This is my father's church, my my grandfather's church, my church for generations. She didn't do it because, you know, I was put on the cradle roll the, the the Sunday after I was born, and I've been here ever since. She didn't do it because this is a church in which I'd been baptized in, in which I was married in. This is a church in which my husband had his funeral. She didn't do it for that reason. Her reason for showing up on Sunday mornings was in case someone else, came she lived in anticipation of someone coming now you can question her sanity or you can admire her tenacity but she lived with a sense of anticipation and hope in the last book of the bible book called revelation there's a short prayer at the end Three words in English. Come, Lord Jesus. It is a prayer of anticipation, a prayer that looks forward. And it is birthed from a promise from Jesus himself. You see, Jesus spoke to his disciples on that very night when he was sharing this last supper with them, he spoke to them these words recorded in John's gospel. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You see, on that same night that Jesus pointed towards these elements, the bread and the cup and the cross that was to come, he also pointed forward with a promise that you who believe in me, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and take you to be with me. Now, whether that is in some rapture at some point or whether that is after we have breathed our last on this earth, it really doesn't matter. The promise holds. The prophets long ago foretold a Messiah who would come, who would live, who would teach, who would suffer, who would die. And who would rise again. And Jesus came to be the fulfillment of that promise, that prophecy. And he then gave us great and precious promises. That he goes to the Father. That he sends the Spirit to live in us and through us. And that he prepares a home for us and will come again to take us to where he is. And so when we come to this table, it is indeed appropriate to look back and to remember but what we're told in verse 26 is that we also need to look forward in anticipation until he comes or what are we to do until he comes The good news is God's given us that answer. We don't have to create it on our own. He didn't say just sit around and twiddle your thumbs and look at the sky and wait until I show up again. In fact, there's lots of places in the New Testament that tell us what to do while we wait. In the parable of the ten talents in Luke chapter 19, we're called to be good stewards of that which God entrusts to us. And so whatever God has given us in this life, we're to use it for his glory and for his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible commands us to give ourselves fully to the work of God. That is what we're to do while we wait. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, we're told to be alert and self-controlled while we wait. We're to be looking and we're to be self-controlled, disciplined in our lives. In Matthew twenty eight, eighteen through twenty, perhaps the most well known of those things to do while we wait, we're instructed to go and make disciples by Jesus Himself. And then here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, we see that we are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is what we do here this morning. When we take these elements, the bread and the cup, we remember that we have a Savior who loved us so much that he died for us bodily on a cross. He not only endured the pain and the shame of the cross, he also took our sins upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He bore the sin of humanity and for the first time in all eternity, for the first time in all eternity, he understood what it meant to be separated from his father. He saw personally, he felt personally the separation that comes from sin and that is why for generation after generation after generation, so much blood had been spilled at the temple because Man's sin, woman's sin was so horrendous to God. Without the, for- the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God sent his son to be the once and for all sacrifice, to die upon a cross, to take our sins upon himself, that we might have life in him. This is what this all means. And it's what we're to proclaim. Here's the part that's a little tricky. This morning, you look around and you see that you're among friends. You're among people who believe like you do or are on their way to believing like you do. And so you will take this bread and you will place it in your mouth and you won't think twice about it. You'll take the cup, you'll place it to your lips, you won't think twice about it, you won't be worried about what the, other, the people around you think about what you're doing. But this is Sunday morning, and this is a safe place. But pretty soon, you're going to go out these doors, and then outside, and you're going to be in a world that is in many ways dark and desperate and apart from Christ. And you will find many who don't believe what you believe and who don't have the same passion about it that you have. In fact, you may find that their passion is completely otherwise. That what they believe is completely contrary to what you believe and they wish you would shut up. And yet we are called to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It doesn't just mean when we come around this table and we share in this bread and this cup, it doesn't just mean that this is where we are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. No, you and I have a God-given responsibility to stand for Jesus outside these walls. You and I, it, it is not The role of paid professionals. It is not simply for pastors and people who've been approved by a mission board. Each of us has the God-given responsibility and blessing to stand for Jesus Christ, to tell people why you believe what you believe, To not just do good to them, but to let them know why you're doing it. Because God so loved you and God so blessed you that you want to show his love and his blessing to others. We are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're to do it without shame. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes... First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What he's saying here is, listen, folks. I realize that I worship a crucified Jewish rabbi. A man who by their standards was humiliated and defeated. I realize that in your eyes that may not be very impressive. But I know more. I know more that when they buried that Jewish rabbi on the third day, the grave could not hold him and he came bounding out in glory. And I know that my life is in his life. You are to share what you have received with a world in desperate need of what you have. In fact, Paul went on to write to his young protege, Timothy, these words in 2 Timothy 1. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or even ashamed of me, his prisoner. You see, Paul's arrested for this. We get to do this for no big, you know, no consequences, right? But Paul was under arrest because he stood for the gospel. But join with me, he says, in suffering for the gospel. I don't know about you but if you're trying to recruit people to a cause the the you know to say, "Hey, listen. Come on and suffer with me." That, you know, that didn't work too well. And yet Paul speaks just as Jesus spoke. Paul said, "Join me in my suffering." Jesus invited people to come and die. Take up your cross follow me. It's not always the rainbows and butterflies, folks. It's the truth. It's a cause, and that cause is a living Savior. He goes on to say, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able... To guard what I have entrusted him for that day. What day is that? Until the day he comes. This is what you and I are called to do as we approach this table. It is to look back and to remember. But it is to look forward in anticipation that I have a savior. Who not only died and rose again, but who's coming again. He's coming for me. And he's coming for all those who believe. And while I wait, I'm not just around here just twiddling my thumbs. I've got to, I need to be doing something. And not, just, and not just doing something. I have a confession to make. Doctor's offices, you do a lot of waiting. And I'm not the best at that. I used to, when I go to a doctor's office, because I play a little golf, when I saw the magazines around, I'd pick up the golf magazines because all those golf magazines, they have these wonderful promises that, you know, if you'll just read this article, then we'll cure your slice, we'll take care of your hook, you'll be able to drive the ball 10 yards longer, your putting will be just absolutely perfect. And so I used to pick up those magazines and read them. And then this realization came on me. I'm not a germaphobe, but I realized that most of the people who come to doctor's offices are sick. They also have looked at those magazines. And so now when I go to a doctor's office, I just avoid the magazines. Now, I'm not so bad that I take Clorox wipes and take care of the chair when I go in, but, but I bring my own reading material when I go to the doctor's office. Used to go with Jay a lot, not, try, not trying to pick on him, but he, he, he played a lot of sports, and he got hurt a lot, and so we'd go to the doctor a lot. And he'll testify to this. When we go in there, you, first you have to wait in the waiting room, And then you have to wait in the examination room. And it's not that doctors don't care, it's just that that's just the way life is. And so you'd wait in the examination room. I'm not very good at waiting. And so I began to look around and open drawers, flip on switches. One of my favorite things to do is get the little knee tapper, check his reflexes, check my reflexes. Now I was very clandestine about it. I don't think, did I ever get caught? Not that I can remember ever getting caught doing that kind of stuff. But Jay and Jackie, when i take her, were like, Dad, Dad. What was I doing? I was filling time. I I wasn't trying to make anything unsterile. I didn't go in and grab all the tongue depressors out and start playing with them. (laughs) You're thinking, what doctor do you go to? I don't want to go there. But I had to do something while I waited. And so I found something to do. And I'm afraid that for many of us, while we wait for Jesus to come, we're finding something to do rather than doing what he's called us to do. We're fiddling around. We're flipping switches. We're opening and closing drawers. But Jesus said, until I come, proclaim my death. Let people know that they have a God who loves them so much that He would send His precious Son to die on a cross for their sins. Tell somebody. And when the Lord comes back, will He find us filling around and filling time? Or will he find us fulfilling his great commission? Standing for Jesus Christ. And boldly proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes.